Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for every morning, for your mercies are always new every morning. But Lord, we thank you particularly for today and this moment where we can come in freedom. That's the line in the song that said, uh, my chains are gone and I can sing in freedom. And I thought that, that line had more meaning for us today as we, as we gather. Lord, thank you that we can sing in freedom. We, we love to sing your praises. And we thank you for your word and that you speak to us today. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your holy word in Nehemiah and through the words that I speak and bring during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> so, on this joyous uh, Sunday together, we're talking about the most obvious of topics, which is how to handle opposition and mockery. How do Christians handle opposition and and mockery. This is a very important question. Maybe it's not the best topic for this morning, but it's where we've come to in our sermon series in Nehemiah. But it's a very important question because Jesus promises. He says to his disciples, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. You will face opposition. You will face mockery as Christians. And so it's important. We know as Christians, how do we handle these moments when people mock, when people bring persecution, when people bring opposition? And so how do Christians handle opposition and mockery? That question is addressed and answered in Nehemiah chapter 4, which I'm going to read to you now. All the words will appear on the screen. Let me read to you from Nehemiah chapter 4. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Less and hard names this week compared to last week, but still a few. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn, burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So he built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord 
who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laboured on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. God will fight for us. So we laboured at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be guard for us at night, and may labour by day. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah chapter 4 is a chapter about the enemies of God's people opposing the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. And it's about the way Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem respond to that threat, respond to that opposition. And in that chapter that I just read to you, there were three rounds of opposition. Three, you know, as kind of a boxing round is, my, is the way I'm thinking about this. So there's three rounds that are fought between the people of Jerusalem and Sanballat and Tobiah and the people opposing the work of rebuilding the wall. And round one begins with mockery. Have a look at verse two. Sanballat gathers his brothers and the army of Samaria about him. Um, and although he's speaking to those people, this news obviously gets through to Nehemiah. So it's, it's not just that he's speaking to his brothers in the army. This is news that he wants the Jer- people of Jerusalem to hear. And Sanballat says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it? Will they restore the wall themselves? Will they sacrifice in the city of Jerusalem? Will they finish rebuilding the wall in a day? Will they revive out of the rubble, out of the stones, the heaps of rubbish? And even the stones that are there, they're burned with fire. Will they be successful? And then his mate Tobiah adds an extra line. Yeah, the wall they're building is going to be so weak. If just a little fox would jump up on it, it's going to fall to pieces. Sanballat and Tobiah are mocking (coughs) Jerusalem and mocking the people who live there. Do you notice that the enemies of Jerusalem focus on the weakness of the Jews? They focus on their feeble strength. They want the Jews to turn and look at themselves and go, you know what, we are really feeble. We are really weak. That's what the opponents of Jerusalem want the Jews to do, is to focus on their weakness. And this is often a tactic used by those who wish to oppose God's people. It may be that you have been openly mocked for your weakness by someone you know. Or even that this church has been openly mocked by someone you know because of its smallness, because of its weakness. But when the New Testament speaks about opposition, when the New Testament talks about enemies, it speaks not primarily about people, but Satan and his 
demons. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so even if you haven't been mocked by a person because of your Christian faith, or you haven't heard the church being mocked because of starting something small and new and difficult, you will have been you will have been targeted by Satan or one of his demons with mockery and with taunts for what you believe and what you do with your time if you're a Christian. And this is one of the tactics of Satan and his forces. You're weak. You're feeble. If your life were a wall and a fox jumped up on it, your life would crumble to pieces. Such is your lack of strength. Can you do that yourself? Can you achieve that? I don't think so. This is what the enemy, this is what the opposition to God's people wants to speak into our lives. The forces of evil want to oppose God's work by ensuring that you are focused on your weakness, your feebleness. Now, in round two of this fighting and opposition, we'll see a solution to that threat of the opposition trying to focus you on your own weakness and your own feebleness. But how does Nehemiah respond in this story? How does Nehemiah respond in round one? He doesn't take vengeance into his own hands, but rather he prays to God for vengeance and judgment. Have a look at verses four and five. This is what Nehemiah prays. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered. Do not cover their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. It's a prayer for judgment to come upon the enemies of God's people, isn't it? Nehemiah's prayer. And in our comfortable Western ears, it might sound like a really harsh way to pray. Did that prayer jar with you when I read it the first time that Nehemiah was praying this prayer against his enemies? Well, consider this. The reason Sambalak was angry in this story in verse 1, he was greatly enraged at the start. The reason he was angry is because he wanted to leave Jerusalem defenceless. And the reason he wanted to leave Jerusalem defenceless was so that his armies could invade and plunder the people. He wanted to steal food from people who did not have enough to eat. He perhaps wanted to do terrible things to the women who were living in Jerusalem. Sambalat is a wicked, wicked man. He's a, he's a horrible man, and Tobiah with him. This is a terrible, awful situation for the people of Jerusalem to be in. And Sambalat's desire is that these people would be vulnerable to his attacks whenever he wants to walk into the city. Sambalat is a wicked man. But Nehemiah does not take vengeance himself, but rather trusts in God's judgment. He, points to, he says to God, this man wants to do wicked things in my city and to my people. Lord, I'm going to give that to you. Would you judge him? Would you bring your vengeance upon him? I want to read to you from the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. This is what it says in Romans 12. Paul writing to the Roman church in the New Testament. And he says this. Beloved Christians... Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here in the UK, I think it's fair to say that we don't face enemies a bit like Sanballat. I can't think of anyone in the United Kingdom who's threatening us in the way that the people of Jerusalem were being threatened by this man, Sanballat. But there are Christians around the globe who face persecution for their faith and who suffer under wicked men like is described in Nehemiah chapter 4. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we pray for those Christians? How do we pray for those people? For instance, right now in Myanmar, Christians are being killed for their faith. There's been a civil uprising in that country and the people who are in power do not like Christianity and there are Christians who are dying in that country. How should we pray for Myanmar as Christians? Well, I can think of three ways that we should pray. Firstly, we should pray, Lord, restrain the evil. Stop what is happening, Lord, in your power. Secondly, we should pray, Lord, convert the persecutors. Convert those people who are doing wrong in that country. May the reason they stop persecuting Christians be that they have encountered with the Lord Jesus Christ and come into a relationship with God, and therefore they no longer want to persecute Christians. That's the second way we should pray. But the third way we should pray, and this is an appropriate way for Christians to pray, is, Lord, bring justice upon evildoers. That's kind of what it's talking about in Romans 12. It's not inviting us necessarily to pray for that in Romans 12, but it's saying, do good to your enemies. And as you do good to your enemies, you're heaping burning coals. You're you're almost preparing them for the vengeance of God to come in the future. We believe that God is a God of justice. We believe that he does bring punishment upon those people who do wicked and evil things in this world and never put their faith in Jesus Christ and repent. And sometimes all we can do in those moments where we're faced with very wicked deeds in the world is pray for the justice of God. I went to Bible college and um, a lot of the students in Bible college were African um, Bible college students, one of whom had been in a tribe where his uh, children, two of his children, um, several of his family and lots of his friends had been killed um, in his tribe. And whenever we talked about the justice of God and the vengeance of God, all the English people were like, really uncomfortable and like, oh, I just don't like this. You know, I want, I want to talk about God's love. I want to talk about God's kindness and God's gentleness. And every time this guy said, I lived in this. And I lived through it. I lived through my friends being murdered in front of me. My children killed. If it weren't for the vengeance of God, I don't know what. I, you know what I would do is I'd pick up a sword and I'd go and find those people and I'd kill them. I would go in my own vengeance to bring just, just justice and judgment upon the people who've done this wicked thing. But I believe in the vengeance of God. I believe in the justice of God, and therefore I do not need to pick up my sword and go and hunt these people down. Rather, I can pray. And this is how we pray. Lord, bring justice upon these people who have hurt me and hurt my family and hurt my friends so terribly. So if you're praying for wicked people, do pray that God would restrain evil. Do pray that they would be converted. But if you're in that place of just such hurt and such concern, then there is a place for prayer in bringing justice upon evildoers in the world. 
In round one, it begins with mockery, and Nehemiah responds with prayer, and the work continues. The Jews go, well, we've prayed now, let's keep building the wall, even though there's this threat upon us. We learn that opponents want to focus us on our feebleness and our weakness. And most importantly from round one, we learn that prayer is our most powerful weapon. Give our situations to God over and over and over again. Round two, a plot to war. In round one, it was just mockery, but in round two, there's a genuine plot to come and invade the city of Jerusalem. In verse eight, it says, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And you see in verse nine, how does Nehemiah respond? He prays again. The people of Jerusalem pray again. Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem show us time and time again that when opposition comes, we pray. And then we pray again. And then we pray again. And then we pray again. When we're suffering, when things are going wrong, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. But in verse 10, in round two, the mockery from round one begins to have an impact in the city of Jerusalem. Do you see in verse 10, the people of Jerusalem say the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing and there is too much rubble. That's what Sam Ballot was saying in, in the first kind of mockery part. And now that started to infiltrate the thinking of the people of Jerusalem. Fear takes hold and the work does indeed stop in round two. Nehemiah stops them building and sets up an armoured guard. But in round two, the verse I want to focus on is verse 14. So Nehemiah stops the work, he gets the people in place to defend the wall, to protect the people of Jerusalem, and this is what he says to those people in verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. When opponents come and they want to focus you on your feebleness and your weakness and your lack of strength, what should we do? We should remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's an encouragement this morning to each of us, in our current circumstances, to remember God, who is great and awesome. In fact, this is what Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what he says regarding weakness and rejoicing, weakness and remembering. He says this, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses... So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a way to respond. The, the opponents are saying, oh, your wall's rubbish. You're weak and feeble. You can do nothing. Or what are your opponents saying to you? What's what are Satan and his demons perhaps speaking to you, reminding you of your weakness and feebleness right now? What are they saying? This is how we should respond with Paul. I'm glad of my weaknesses. I rejoice in my weaknesses because in my weakness, the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think this is what Kate was saying when she stood up here and shared, in the rawness, God moves and God works. In the weakness, the power of Christ moves and is shown to be more powerful and more glorious. We have had months and months of news focused on fragility. Months and months of news saying, our nation is in in trouble. You're threatened by what's going on in the world. Well, here is a word from God to remind us to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. This is a call for faith, not fear, to reign in our lives. Because in our weaknesses, the power of Christ rests upon us. 
Isn't that amazing? Let us remember the great and awesome Lord who is with us through all things. So round two. There's a plot for war and the work stops. But we learn to remember God's greatness, even to rejoice in our weaknesses. Because we don't trust in our own strength. We trust in the power of Christ. Round three in Nehemiah chapter four. I've entitled The Triumph of God in Jerusalem. Verse 15, Nehemiah writes this. When our enemies heard that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to work. Nehemiah credits God with frustrating the plan. Yes, Nehemiah has has heard this news and he's planned and he's set up an armoured guard and he's got people praying and he's got people set up around the wall. But ultimately it's God who's frustrated the plan. Nehemiah doesn't take any credit himself. He's a very humble man. You know, in many years to come where we see hundreds of people come to know Jesus Christ, what are we going to do? Are we going to say, yes, we've done such an awesome job of building the church? No. We're going to say God has done such an awesome job of bringing people into his kingdom. We were feeble and weak, and the power of Christ rests upon us. And he has done great, great things. I love that Nehemiah says it's God who's frustrated their plan in verse 15. And so the people in Jerusalem, having frustrated this plan, settle into a new rhythm. Verse 16. Half the people focused on construction... And half the people held weapons and guarded the people who were working on construction. Now, last week I was talking about perfumers who were uh, becoming construction workers in order to build the wall. I don't know which half the perfumers were on. Were the perfumers grabbing the sword and going, or were they just a little spray bottle and fighting off the enemies? I don't know. I think think the perfumers probably carrying on with the building because they got good at that now. They settle into a new rhythm. Half the people build and half the people hold weapons to defend against the coming invasion. And I think what happens in round three, from verse 15 onwards, is a picture of what the Christian life should look like. We need to, on the one hand, be vigilant against enemies, and on the other hand, continue serving the Lord, continue doing the work. Building the wall of Jerusalem was a way of serving the Lord, and so we as Christians need to be vigilant against our spiritual enemies in particular, and we need to continue serving the Lord. That's how people filled with faith in the power of Christ live. They know that there's enemies, but they carry on working. And that's what Ephesians 6 is all about. I've already referenced Ephesians 6 once this morning. Well, let me do it again. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, as Christians, we need to be clothed in the armour of God, which protects us from spiritual attack. He writes, and Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 11, Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul doesn't write, forget about the devil, there's nothing to worry about there, just get on with life. No, he says there is one who seeks to oppose you, and he has schemes, he is your enemy, he will do everything he can to pull you down. We need to be aware of him, and therefore we need to wear the whole armour of God to protect us. We need to be vigilant against our spiritual enemies. And so Paul says, put on the belt of truth, protect yourself by learning what is true from the word of God and cling to what is true in all situations. And the truth that Paul speaks of is Christ revealed 
in the Bible, in God's word. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not righteousness which you've earned through your own good works, but righteousness that has been given to you by Christ. When he died on the cross, he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. And so we wear as a breastplate the righteousness of Christ. And so when I'm not doing so well, when I've had a bad day, when I've sinned, when I've not read my Bible, when I haven't prayed, what am I going to do? Am I going to go, oh, I'm open to attack. I'm in a very bad place. No, I'm going to say the righteousness of Christ is protecting me. Though I have had a bad day, I am forgiven. I am clothed with Jesus' righteousness. So my breastplate is still protecting me. And that thought is a powerful way of protecting me from slipping into further sin. Paul says, wear the shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. The gospel, the good news, is a gospel of peace. We were once enemies with God, but now we have peace with God. Christ has reconciled us to God, so we have peace with God. And that gospel of peace gives us a readiness in our feet to go and do the work that God has called us to do. I have peace with God. I want to bring this peace to the world. I want to be a peacemaker everywhere I go. Take up the shield of faith, writes Paul. I believe in Christ. His, he, he protects me. His power protects me. My shield is strong, not because my faith is big, but because of the one whom I have placed my faith is strong and mighty. And so even the smallest amount of faith placed in the bigness and power of Christ is an awesome shield to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Put on the helmet of salvation. I have been saved. Jesus has rescued me. He is my saviour. That's a great protection, isn't it? When lies are flung at you, when opponents mock you. I've been saved by God. Jesus thought me and the church were worth dying for on the cross. That's amazing salvation. That's amazing protection. And finally, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, authored by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Human hands wrote it down, but the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. And this is a sword. This is this is a way of defending yourself from Satan. That's what Christ does in the wilderness when Satan fire, uh, gives him tempts him. Jesus quotes the word back at Satan in order to defend himself. And we need to know this and learn this and, and say this is spiritual. To read the word is to hear from the Holy Spirit and to remember it and to memorize verses is to, to almost practice playing with that practice, fighting with your sword, to defend yourself when the evil one seeks to bring you down. We need to clothe ourselves in the spiritual armor which God has provided because we must be vigilant against our spiritual opponents. We must be vigilant wearing the spiritual armour of God and we must continue working for the Lord. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul writes about doing the good works which God has prepared for us to do. Do you know if you're a Christian here, if you're a Christian watching online, God has good works prepared for you to do. So you need to actively, consciously, prayerfully put on the armour of God and then go, right, today... I've got good works that God has prepared for me. What are they? Who am I going to love? Who am I going to share the gospel with? Which Christian in the church am I going to encourage or, or say I'm praying for? What, how are you going to walk in the good works that God has for you today? Vigilance against our enemies. But walking in the good works that God has, just like these people in Jerusalem, prepared for attack with the armour, but still building the wall which God had called them to build. Church, we have powerful spiritual enemies, but we have a more powerful saviour in Jesus Christ. He has conquered. 
he has been victorious. You know, Satan and his demons are, are powerful, but compared to Christ, they are nothing. They are weak and feeble. You know, I think there's a place in Christianity for even mocking the, the evil powers as he to oppose Christ, in, in a sense. You know, death, where is your sting, we can say, according to the Bible. We can say, Satan, I'm not scared of you. I know that you're important and I need to be protected against you, but I'm not scared of you because I have Christ and he has the victory for me on my behalf. Let's be vigilant, but keep walking in the good, work, good works that God has for us. So that's round three, the triumph of God and Jerusalem. And we learn to put on the armour of God and keep walking according to God's instructions. And so we see in Nehemiah chapter four that we need to pray. We need to focus on God's strength rather than our own weakness. And we need to put on the armour of God described in Ephesians chapter six. But as I draw to a close, let me make one final point. The purpose of the Old Testament is primarily to point us to Christ. Yes, the Old Testament teaches us how we should live, what a righteous Christian life looks like, but the primary purpose of the Old Testament is to point to Christ. And so I think when we read about Nehemiah and Jerusalem's victory over Sambalat, we should begin to think and consider the way Jesus triumphs over his opponents in his life. In the victory of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 4 is a shadow and a pointer to the victory of Christ in his life to come. And so as I finish, let me remind you of the ways in which Jesus dealt with the opposition that he faced when he came to this earth. At the start of his ministry, immediately after he was baptised, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And in the wilderness, he is tempted by Satan three times. Now in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, they succumbed. They gave in to that temptation. But Jesus rebukes and defeats Satan in the wilderness and does not give in to any of those temptations. And so in Adam... All humanity fall with Adam and Eve into sin and death. But in Christ, all believers, all who put their faith in Christ, are raised to holiness and life. Adam and Eve failed where Christ succeeds. And so we fall with Adam, but we are raised with Christ. We share in his victory. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was opposed by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They question him. They criticise Jesus. In particular, they like to criticise Jesus because he likes to hang out with the people on the fringes of society. The people who were obviously and overtly sinners. The tax collectors. The people who the Jews were like, why are you hanging out with them? They're the worst worst Jews. They're the worst people in this city. And they criticise Jesus. What did Jesus do? He overcame opposition by continuing to show compassion to the people who needed to receive his compassion. And he had the firmness to rebuke the Pharisees and to teach them what they had misunderstood and done wrong. In his trials leading up to his crucifixion, the Jews and the Romans hurl accusations and insults at Christ. He suffers intense persecution, intense opposition. What does he do this time? Jesus triumphs by remaining silent, by willingly offering up his life upon the cross. He doesn't respond and defend himself, but he knows that his death 
is the plan for the salvation of the world. And so he, in this kind of topsy-turvy way, overcomes opposition by saying, yeah, hell your accusations. Hell your insults at me. I will die on the cross because I love my people. And I'm going to the cross to rescue them. So Jesus overcomes opposition in a totally amazing way in going to the cross. Finally, in his resurrection, Jesus defeats perhaps the greatest opponent of all, death itself. He dies on the cross, he's placed in the tomb, yet death could not hold him. Death, this opponent, was not too fierce for Jesus Christ, and he is raised to life on the third day. He overcomes the opponent of death. Oh, we have a glorious saviour of Jesus Christ. He overcomes opposition in all these amazing ways. He defeats Satan in the wilderness. He beats the Pharisees in the way he teaches and shows compassion. He remains quiet to go to the cross to rescue us from our sin. And then in the resurrection, he defeats death itself. Let us, therefore, face opposition, especially the spiritual enemies that I've spoken about, in prayer, following the example of Nehemiah, with a focus on God's strength rather than our own feebleness by consciously and prayerfully putting on the spiritual armour of God but most importantly of all let us celebrate and rejoice and believe that we have triumphed in Jesus he is the one who conquers our opponents he is the one who is ultimately victorious he is the great saviour he is the great leader he is the great king to whom no opponent could withstand and so we love him and we praise him and we worship him. Let's pray. In fact, um, if, you're, if you're able to, if you want to, let's stand as I pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we know as Christians we will face opposition. Often people oppose Christianity, but ultimately, Lord, you know that it's Satan and his his evil workers, his demons who seek to oppose us, seek to tempt us, seek to mock us, seek to jeer at us. Lord, I pray that you would protect us. I pray that we would clothe ourselves in the spiritual armour spoken about in Ephesians chapter 6. I pray that we would put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of of salvation, the shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We would take up the shield of faith and we would bear the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I pray you would defend us, you would protect us. I pray we would be vigilant and at the same time we would consciously continue in the work that you've given us to do. I pray we would not respond with fear, but we would respond in faith in the power of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you are great and awesome. And I pray faith in your power, faith in the power of Christ resting upon us would drive us to live for you, even in the face of terrible, difficult opposition. And I pray you would build your church. You would do amazing things through us, just as they built the wall in Jerusalem. They overcame that opposition. Would you help us build and rebuild a glorious church that brings you the praise you are worthy of? and and walks according to your commandments, sings your praises, and sees other people saved into your kingdom, into your family. Would you do that for your glory and in your strength? For we are weak and feeble, Lord. We are weak. We have weaknesses, every single one of us. And sometimes we're so conscious of those weaknesses. But Lord, today we rejoice in those weaknesses, because when we are weak, you are strong, and the power of Christ rests upon us. I pray this would be a moment where people experience the power of Christ resting upon them now. May they know your power in their lives, I pray. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.